Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. Hello. My name is Marvin Hemeyer. Today is, uh, let's see here, April 13th, 2004. I am making this tape. I thought I should make it a year ago. Made part of it. Didn't like it. Really didn't think it'd make any difference if I did make it, but a good friend of mine said I should make it. He said I should sit down in front of a videotape machine and do it, but you're just going to have to take my word that this is Marv Hemeyer, serial number 503-689-471. And uh, it, I'm living in Grand Lake, Colorado. And this tape is about my life since I come up here to Grand Lake. If I would have been married, had a family, you know, things may have gone different. But God built me for this job. He rewarded me for 45, 50 years with the lifestyle that I am so thankful for. And, and it's unfortunate, the poor people in Granby, so many of them were so jealous of my lifestyle that I could come and go as I pleased. Well, God blessed me in advance for the task that I am about to undertake. Ty Webb, Heavy Longmire, Gustave Mateblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Welcome back to Can You Hear Me, the podcast. That's supposed to be three guys talking about stuff, but it's just me, your old friend, Gustav Monteblanc, this week. I am hearing from the moderators and the mediators and the playmakers and the deal breakers that there's a chance in the future that we may get the gang back together. It's a long shot, but I'll keep you posted. In the meantime, you're stuck with me. And you can always reach me on Twitter at RealGustav. You can send out a message to my maybe former co-host, I'm not sure, to at TyWeb3000 or at Heavy. And of course, you can always directly tweet the podcast itself at CanYouHearMePod. And we'd love to hear from you via email at CanYouHearMePod at gmail.com. And all of our back episodes are on the website, canyouhearmepod.com. So enough of the housekeeping. Let's get down to this uh, city of Gustav, which I really enjoyed delving into. Earlier this week, I was reminded of a fascinating incident 14 years ago to the day that captivated me when I first saw it on the news. On June 4th, 2004, the world learned of a mild-mannered, middle-aged man named Marvin Hemeyer and his homemade armored bulldozer, which the world called the Killdozer. And we, as the world, would get one of the most fascinating tales of revenge that I've ever heard. So let's 
kind of reset, go into the basics of the story. Uh, I, I admit fully that even though I, I watched it when it happened and remember it, that it was uh, surreal how it went down, but I really didn't ever delve deeply into the facts around the case. So Marvin Hemeyer was a 52-year-old businessman who had operated and sold multiple muffler repair shops over the course of his life. You know, he was a welder, a little bit of mechanical background, and just an overall kind of entrepreneur. Originally, he was from South Dakota, but he'd moved to Colorado as an adult, and he'd set up shops in Denver and Boulder, and once the muffler shops became successful... He would either lease them to a new owner or sell them outright. And as he flipped these businesses over the years, he made a profit and lived, you know, a fairly comfortable lifestyle. In the early 90s, Marv decided to move to Grand Lake, Colorado. And he bought a piece of property over in nearby Granby in what he described as an FDIC foreclosure auction ostensibly for his friend John Kleiner, to use for some type of business venture. But ultimately, Marvin would keep possession of the property and use it for his own purposes. Now, I believe that it was actually a Resolution Trust Corporation auction, not an FDIC auction. Now, Resolution Trust Corporation, that's a federal entity that's organized and responsible for cleaning up the aftermath of the savings and loan crisis that happened in the 80s. And the difference there being that savings and loans are not backed by the FDIC. They're backed by a different government organization. And when things went to hell, it was up to the Resolution Trust Corporation to sort things out. Multiple times, Hemeyer references the savings and loan failure and its effect on the Granby area, but he always describes his dealings with this auction as that it was an FDIC auction. So it's kind of murky exactly which it was, but I'm betting it was the Resolution Trust Corporation, not the FDIC. And I mentioned that Hemeyer references things, and that's because in 2004, prior to the Kill Dozer incident, Marvin Hemeyer recorded over two and a half hours of audio tapes that chronicled his time in Granby. And that's where I got a lot of the information for this episode from. I listened to all of his tapes so that you, my faithful listener and my friends, didn't have to listen to it. It's not great. It's, it's a lot of rambling. It's repetitive at times. But I have to admit, from the perspective of someone who has to record a solo episode from time to time, my hat's off to him for being able to string together such a long narrative. Although, as I mentioned, there's some definite repetition. According to Marvin, the only person that was also bidding on the property was a man named Cody Docheff, but he didn't have enough money to win the auction, and so Marvin won it. Now, from the start, the relationship between Hemeyer and Docheff was very tense. Marvin felt that Docheff resented him for winning the auction, and according to Hemeyer, over the years he would offer to sell the property to Docheff, but it never went through. And obviously, since he is an entrepreneur slash businessman, Marvin was always trying to get a higher price and oftentimes towards the end, much higher than the original auction price. Originally, Marvin had no direct ties to Granby, so he was basically a stranger who'd rolled into town and bought up some land. Now, since the Can You Hear Me hosts all grew up in a small town, 
I can attest that this isn't always met receptively by the locals. Over the course of the years, Hemeyer began to feel that a lot of the locals were, in fact, against him, and it was actually a conspiracy of a good old boy network actively working to make his life difficult. We start to see in his tape that there are probably some valid points about some of the incidents that happened, but there's also a lot of persecution complex going on, and he is probably conflating some of the transgressions against him. So with this new piece of property, Hemeyer started another muffler repair shop in one of the buildings on the property there in Granby, and things seemed to be going fairly well for a while. Although he was having trouble with the Sanitation and Water District Board involving easements and some other things going on and permits. So soon, Dochef, who originally had wanted to buy that property that Marvin bought, he bought 21 acres next door to Marv's property. And Dochef was able to get the property rezoned as industrial, which that chapped Marvin's hide because he'd been trying to get some things done and had run into a brick wall when it came to zoning. And Marvin didn't want a concrete plant next to him. Here's a fun fact. Nobody wants a concrete plant next to them. They're dirty, they're loud, and it's not really great for property values. And the Dochef property was upwind from Marvin's property. So the dust from the concrete plant would be blowing downwind to Hemeyer's property, and he was upset about that. And, you know, rightly so. So what do you do when things like this go against you? Well, you lawyer up. So Marvin hired an attorney and a zoning consultant in his fight against the concrete plant and his fights with the water board. During the course of this fight for the zoning, Hemeyer came to believe that the Granby City attorney and Dochef's attorney were in cahoots with one another. He also believed that the judge involved in the case was also compromised because that judge and his wife had fought against Dochef from building a, a different plant several miles away that was near property that the judge and his wife owned. They had worked themselves against getting this alternate plant built. So in Marv's mind, the judge was solving his own problem by allowing Dochef to build next to Hemeyer's property because then he wouldn't need to build the pro- a plant next to his. And to further Marv's paranoia, he believed his own attorney was not fighting hard enough because he would have to deal with the same judge in future cases. And this saga went on for many, many years. And in the course of those years, many of Marvin's perceived enemies actually passed away. But that didn't stop him. He still was holding this grudge, and he continued to blame and in some cases harass family members of the deceased. A case in point were a group of contractors named the Thompsons, and he originally blamed Ron Thompson for keeping his property from being included in the sanitation district. And you know, like I said, this thing goes on for 13, 14, almost 13 years. And after Ron passed away, in the tapes, Marv talks about how he approached Ron's brother Larry Thompson and told him that now he owed him three hundred thousand dollars that he felt that Ron, the deceased brother, had caused him to lose out on making. This is where the tapes kind of got interesting. Marv details this interaction and his thinking behind it. And then in the tapes, Hemeyer specifically calls out the Thompson family and espouses his theory that part of the reason that they mistreated him was that they were Catholic and that Catholics didn't treat 
their neighbors properly. Marvin himself was a Protestant, but Marvin was holding forth some very anti-Catholic sentiments, and he even takes a swipe at the papacy in his tapes. Those tapes provide some insight into Marvin's general worldview, and there he describes himself as having a champagne income, but having beer taste. And in that metaphor, he was trying to convey that he led a very simple life of a bachelor business owner, but was not extravagant in his purchases. Hemeyer never married and seemed to enjoy things like snowmobiling with what he would describe, quote-unquote, as his friends. But I got the impression that he probably wasn't that close to anyone because when he would talk to these friends, he never was really glowing about how close he was. He found lots of faults with them. Now, some people described him as affable, but obviously if you got on his wrong sides, things were very different. And we see that with his interaction with the Thompsons, and uh, there's some other stories out there about him being very angry if you owed him money. And speaking of that, in the 80s, Hemeyer had a few financial setbacks that he talks about on the tape, such as a land deal that he claimed he lost $57,000 on. There was an early business partner that he said cost him $10,000. He talks about the first franchise that he ever bought into and paid $10,000, the franchise company immediately folded, so he lost that money. And then in the 90s, in the early 90s, one of his muffler shops that he was just leasing out to a new operator, that went bad, and that cost him about $100,000. Yet, throughout all of this, Hemeyer was still ahead, and by all accounts would be considered a success when it came to business. But those early losses, they left a mark on Marvin. So as this period of time progresses, Marvin's having all of these zoning troubles, and the dust is blowing downwind from the concrete plant, Marvin felt that his muffler shop business was starting to suffer, and he wasn't able to use his property to its full extent. He'd hoped to build some additional buildings on that property and then rent those out, and he began to hold a lot of animosity towards the town council. He even believed that whenever those town council members saw him on the streets of Granby, which is not a big town, that they were snickering at him. And to add insult to injury, the town council had fined him $2,500 because he had junk cars on his property and he was in violation of the sewer and water district codes. During the course of his troubles in Granby, he'd also gotten crossways with the local newspaper. So, years and years of perceived transgression, along with these fines and the state of his property, things had finally reached a critical mass for Marvin. Fed up, he decided to close the shop and just sell the property. Now, somewhere around this time, Hemeyer began to feel that he was being compelled by God to teach his enemies and the town of Granby a lesson on how to treat your neighbor. In the tapes, he describes a moment while he was sitting in his hot tub, weeping distraught over everything that was going down and the struggles that he was having. But then he felt a peace and a realization that this was a calling from God. Initially, he offered up the property, a backhoe, two jet skis, an old Chevy Nova, and his Komatsu D355 bulldozer up at a public auction. All of these items had a reserve price set on them. And if you've never been to an auction, if the reserve isn't met, the minimum price that you'll take, then the item doesn't sell. And while the backhoe, the jet skis, and the Nova all met their reserve prices, the property itself and his D355 dozer 
They didn't make their reserve prices, so they didn't sell. Marvin saw this as a sign from God that it was meant to be. He had already thought about using his dozer, but now this was a sign. Then he figured out that this particular model of bulldozer was just small enough to fit through the door into the bay of one of his buildings on his property. To Hemeyer, this was another sign from God that it was meant to be. And he began to work on armoring his bulldozer and creating what we now call the killdozer. I grew up watching the A-Team and seeing Mr. T act as B.A. Baracus, who would always save the day by welding up some kind of makeshift armor vehicle to fight the bad guys. Well, Hemeyer went way beyond this. You know, as I mentioned, he was a had a mechanic background and he was a welder. You know, you have to be able to weld if you operate a muffler repair shop. So he was already had some skills, but I tip my hat to what he ended up creating. Marvin protected the cabin and the engine with plate steel and some sections plate steel that had concrete sandwiched in between. In some areas of the of the armoring, it was a foot thick. Now, there's not much floating around in even the gun culture of the United States that's going to punch through this. But this is one man doing all this, and plate steel is incredibly heavy. So what he did in the shop, he installed a boom with an electrical winch in order to move these heavy pieces of plate into position during the construction so he could raise it up, shift it over, lower it, get it in place, tack it on, and then go to and finish the welding everything up. But he's having doubts. According to the tapes, he would love to have been caught. He would have loved to have been stopped. And during this process of him armoring up the killdozer, he was working on a deal to sell the property for $400,000. Now, if I remember right, I think he only paid $55,000 originally at that auction for the property. So that's a tremendous profit even after taxes. In the course of the deal, the buyers and their insurance agents needed to inspect the buildings on the property. And, of course, one of those buildings is where the bulldozer is being armored up. So Marvin, even though he wanted to be caught, he didn't want to be caught, if that makes sense. So he made an attempt to cover things up in the shop. He built a little quick room out of two-by-fours and canvas to stick all the welding equipment tools into over in the corner of the shop. And then he covered the dozer from front to back with giant tarps and taped them up. So when the insurance agent comes, he feeds him some crazy cockamamie story about a professor using this bulldozer to test a cryogenic system to improve fuel economy. And that's why it's got all this, the dozers all wrapped up, this electrical booms in place. And according to Marv, they bought it. Now, I'm not sure that they actually bought it. I'm thinking more that they knew who Marv was and that he was a little bit off-center and that they just wanted to get the deal done. So I think they chose to go along with the story and just move forward. Now, when you weld giant plates of steel onto your bulldozer cab, you can't really see where you're going. But Marv was thinking ahead of that. So he installed closed-circuit video cameras multiple places on the dozer, and those were all linked back to two monitors that he had inside the cab. The cameras themselves were protected by three-inch bulletproof plastic plates. So now he can drive this dozer wherever he wants to. He can see where he's going and what's around him, and his cameras are protected. 
of course, when you close up the cab of the dozer, it's going to be a little bit stuffy in there. So he installed fans and even an air conditioner that would keep the cab cool during his forthcoming rampage. And for good measure, he installed three gun ports in the cab. I've read that he had a 50 caliber Barrett rifle and a FN FNC 223 and a Mini-14. But I'm not sure that that was a Mini-14 or a Mini-30. So Ruger made the Mini-30, which fired a 7.62 by 39 round, which is the same round that AK-47s and SKSs use. And from just seeing the rifle, the picture of it, I couldn't tell which it was. Because somewhere along the way, I read that he had a 308. And the FNFNC is a 223, and obviously the Barrett's a 50 cal. So I'm wondering, because 30 cal is 7.62, but it's not 308. I'm wondering if there was some confusion, because when people start talking guns, things often get kind of muddy. It doesn't matter what the guns were. He was armed up. He had created this homemade tank for all practical purposes. As I mentioned, Marv had made these audio tapes in the spring of 2004. And according to the tapes, he'd also documented everything on a computer, which he sent to his brother along with the tapes in South Dakota. So on June 4th, 2004, Hemeyer fires up his killdozer and drives straight through the wall of the building where he had modified the dozer. He then proceeded to tear through the town of Granby for the next two hours and seven minutes. That's a long time to be just tooling around on a dozer. And as you know, if you've ever been around heavy machinery, they don't move really fast. So it must have been just surreal to watch this bulldozer that looks like something out of a Mad Max movie just rolling down the street and just ramming into things. As we remember from the original problems that Marvin had, Dochef's concrete plant was on property that was right next to Marvin's property. So, of course, he headed straight to the root of all problems and attacked the concrete plant first, before then heading into town and going for the town hall, the newspaper office, multiple other personal homes, and particularly the home of the former mayor's widow. So that mayor is long dead and gone, but Marvin's going after what's left. As I mentioned when we talked about the Thompsons, he held grudges against the families, not just the person that he perceived had wronged him. And then he headed to a hardware store that he Meyer had had a problem with as well. I think he sued that guy in the past as well. And of course, you know, law enforcement gets involved naturally, calling in a SWAT team because it's two hours. You know, they had plenty of time to get people on the scene. I'm not sure that Granby had a SWAT team. I'm sure they came from somewhere else. But in the course of their trying to stop Hemeyer, they fired around 200 rounds. They tried flashbang grenades down the ex- uh, into the, like the exhaust, and that didn't do anything because. Small arm fire was no match for the heavy armoring of Marvin's well-constructed killdozer. So he's basically doing whatever he wants. He continues through the town, ultimately destroying or damaging 13 buildings in Granby. And they believe that Marvin himself had fired 15 rounds 
and some propane tanks that maybe he was hoping to explode and cause more damage. But he was unsuccessful in that attempt. Through all of this, Marvin is not shooting at law enforcement who are shooting at him. And although he is running over vehicles and pushing people aside as they try to stop him. Towards the end of his rampage, the last building that he attacked was the Gamble's Hardware Store. Now, through all of these ramming and pushing over things, driving into houses and vehicles, that does take a toll even when you're armored, and the radiator had taken some damage during the rampage. At one point, they tried to stop him with a road maintainer, and he ran into that and pushed it aside. So he was very active in this time. He wasn't just sitting around. After it was done, they found a map that listed all the places he was going, and he didn't make everywhere because he had the Catholic Church listed as one of his targets, but he didn't get to that one, so it was spared. As I mentioned, he had some strong anti-Catholic sentiment for some reason. At Gamble's, the hardware store, it had a basement, and that's where Marvin slipped a track into, and he couldn't get traction to get out of it. So he stuck, the radiator's damaged, and that was the end of the line for Marvin. So the police then heard a single shot come from inside the cab, and Hemeyer took his own life with a single round from a three fifty seven Magnum revolver. They didn't know that that Marvin was dead at the time, but they assumed. The shot hadn't come out of one of the ports, and the dozer was he was no longer trying to move the dozer. So it took the bomb squad hours and hours to even get into the kill dozer. At first, they tried using small explosive charges a total of three different times to try and breach the cab, but they couldn't. The armor was just that well done, and ultimately, they had to resort to acetylene torches to cut through the plate. And once they got in, they see that Marvin's passed away. I think it was 2 a.m. the next morning by the time they actually got the body out. And that was the end of Marvin Hemeyer and the saga of the Killdozer. In the tapes, Marvin had seen himself as a vehicle of retribution from God to teach the town of Granby and all of his transgressors how they should treat their neighbors. In his rampage, I've seen estimates that uh, there were $7 million of damage done to the city. But that figure might be even higher if you factor in both city and private property. And I'm not sure that anybody ever totally calculated that. And while he could have hurt someone, luckily no one was killed in his rampage. The only fatality was Marvin Hemeyer himself from his own hand. But going into it from the tapes, it's clear that he didn't plan on making it out alive. Earlier in the tapes, there's a little bit of doubt. But towards the end, he has resolved himself that this will be his last hurrah and that he's not going to survive. But he did state that he'd given the money away, which he had netted after the sale of his property, which was about $350,000, as well as giving away his home over in Grand Lake. I'm not sure who exactly he gave them to. I never found that when I was reading up on this and in the tapes he doesn't say That would be interesting to me to know a little bit more about who was close enough and trusted enough for him to receive this large sum of money. After 14 years, I'm surprised that Hollywood hasn't made a movie about Marvin Hemeyer and his killdozer. Of course, for you geeks 
and lovers of 70s culture, there was a made-for-TV sci-fi movie in 1974 called Killdozer, with an exclamation mark. It starred Clint Walker, noted Western star, and I think he was also in The Dirty Dozen, if I remember correctly, and featured an alien-controlled bulldozer that hunts down its crew while they're working in Africa. As I mentioned, the tapes are two and a half hours long. They're not an easy listen. So I've included some clips from Marvin's tapes into the intro and outro today. If you are so inclined, at the moment, the full tape is on YouTube. And if you're interested, you could listen to it. But I'm not recommending it. I hope that I've kind of given you the high points and distilled things down for you accurately. But if you're a glutton for punishment and you got two and a half hours to listen to, then have at it. So thanks for joining me today on this tale of the Killdozer, and I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. I, I mean, I wept at times trying to understand why this was happening to me. And to do what I had to do to make these people listen, to learn, was just above me. And when I realized that one day, when I was sitting in the hot tub, and I mean, I was, I was weeping, a peace came over me that has only come over me a few times before in my life, where I knew that what I was doing was tough, but it was the right thing, and that it was above me. It wasn't me. I was doing this because God wanted me to do it. And I didn't understand it. I said, why did you ask me to do this? Is that why I've never been married? So I didn't have a family? Is that why I've always been successful? So that I would realize my reward before doing this task? I don't know. There are other things I can ask. Had I not carried my cross earlier, and now God had prepared me, to carry this cross? I believe so. And I'm carrying the cross willingly now. At first, I fought it. But it has to be done. And the world will write stories about how wrong I am and everything. And without a doubt, I wish it could be done a different way. But there is no way to make this right. God built me Maybe clear back in the fourth grade when I broke my arm. Because that's when my, my, my uh, grade started falling off. I don't know. He had this plan clear back then. Maybe, if you believe in predestination, which I do, maybe it was planned before I was born. I don't know. I don't understand predestination that much, but I do believe in it. So here we are. And I am at peace with what I am about to do. I, I, I have to be. And uh, although I've wrestled with it for years and, you know, God gave me this last winter off again because he knew that I wasn't strong. And uh, <laughs> that, was, that was so unique that this didn't get done last year. Uh, how the sale of the business kind of interrupted my progress on my, uh, um, my Marv Komatsu, what did, we, what did I call it? I got a name for it. Oh, my MK Tank. You had to, you had to take me on en masse. Well, 
I'm going to take you on by myself. It's the only way I know how to do it. I'll be dead when it's over. But that's my conviction. And for the people that are out there that hear this, that can stand listening to it, please pray for me. Pray for my soul. I believe that that I'm doing the right thing. I don't think God would have let me get this far if it was the wrong thing. I don't think God would have given me the successful life that I had. I call it successful. I think I was a very poor person most of my life. But I, I, for, for who I was and where I, what I was, I think I was a very rich man. And I'm thankful to God for giving me that life and giving me what I had. I mean, without a doubt, I made sacrifices. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have family. But God built me that way for a reason. And and we're here today. And I'm going to carry that cross. I'm going to fulfill the reason he built me. All right, I'm going to stop again. And malice begets beget malice. Had they had they stayed out of my business in ninety two, uh, you know, I would have gotten my uh rental units put up probably in ninety three instead of ninety four, which was only a boathouse at the time, but could have easily been converted to rentals. You know, it's they just they just uh they just ruined a, a good man's life, a lot of people's lives. But that's their style. That's what works for them. That's the only way they can stay on top. They can't play on a level level playing field. You know, they gotta they gotta try to keep people down. And that's okay. You know, hopefully they'll they'll learn from their mistakes. Some half of them are dead. Dick Thompson, Ron Thompson, the Dochef girl. The D&J's uh, son, north of me. And I don't know how many else are involved. They're probably dead, too. They deserve it. They, 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 they went too peaceful, as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, this tape's probably got a lot of emotion in it. And uh, anybody listening to it, you know, you need to uh, realize that. And just uh, take it from there, you know. Hey, I hope you all have a great time, a good life. I've had a great life. And uh, it's Saturday morning, uh, 22nd of May, 2004. And I'm going to put this tape and tape recorder in a plastic bag. Somebody else can try to figure it out. We'll see you later. And world-class championship wrestling. I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Sally. Good night from Dallas, Texas. <laughs>